You know, what's interesting about everything that was just said is this whole series in the book of Acts, I've been trying to remind you week after week, and whoever's preaching has been trying to remind you that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to connect God's redemptive story from Old Testament to New Testament. Like, if you ever want to read, what bridges the gap between the patriarchs and, and this amazing story in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what connects that to Jesus? Read the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Because the bridge that is constantly being walked over through his writing is all over the place. And we're on the back end of Acts right now, getting to the second half of Acts in this over-year-long series that's going to go on forever. Um, it's, it's Acts chapter 17, and it's in, don't turn there yet because we're going to do a second Bible drill. It's an interesting chapter because there's three different cities that get covered. Our college pastor, Gage Henry, covered Thessalonica last Sunday in such a powerful word. Next Sunday, there's this epic story of Paul preaching the gospel in Athens in front of the elites of Greece. You do not need to miss church next Sunday for any reason. I'm so excited for that sermon and cannot wait to bring it to you. But there's this little section in the middle, and it's this seemingly unimportant church, at least on paper it looks unimportant, called Berea. But it's Actually, in Acts chapter 17, the model church that we're supposed to look at and emulate of all three cities that are covered in Acts chapter 17. Before we get in there, I want to give you the title for this sermon because I want to tell you what they did that we need to learn to emulate. The title for this sermon is called Blank Check Living. Blank Check Living. And for those who are under the age of 25, I need to cover what exactly a check is. So a check is this thing that you write from your bank account, and it, it's like attached to monetary values. I know many of you are like, what? It's, it's, it's Venmo now, like what, what are you talking about? But, but thankfully, especially for our church, a lot of people still do write checks to this day, and, and as you sign a check and ascribe a certain amount of value to it, you're giving permission to whoever you hand that check to to take from you whatever value is written on the physical check. Now, when you say blank check, this was actually a movie that I watched growing up. Anybody ever watched the movie Blank Check as a kid? See, these are all my people over here, same generation. All the Gen Z people are like, what? Uh, blank Check, Richie Rich, Sandlot. I mean, just so many amazing movies that we've lost over time, but we need to come back to. But, but this, this kid gets a blank check and pretty much chooses on his computer that's a Macintosh. That, uh, guys, you need to go back and watch this movie. And he attaches a, a value that he chooses to it. And the idea behind a blank check is that the person who's holding it and receiving it gets to choose what value they want to take from it from the person who gave it away. And when we say blank check living from a spiritual perspective, we're talking about turning your life into a blank check before God. We're talking about God, I surrender to you means more than I give you this situation. I give you what I'm facing, I give you this miracle, I need you to come through. A blank check is, God, you have permission to call forth from my life whatever you want to. That's what I surrender all means. That God, if you want to call me to something new in my job, if you want to call me to something new in my family, if you're asking me to go to a certain level of generosity, if you're asking me to change in this relational level, if you're asking me to change this habit, God, my life is a blank check before your throne. Now at ACC, this is another way of describing something that we talk about all the time. Do not miss this. We love to tell y'all our goal is not that you would pray the prayer to receive Christ and get baptized and get a Bible. Those are all great things. Our goal is that you would become 
a fully surrendered follower of Jesus who's being formed into the image of Jesus over the course of a lifetime in a process called discipleship or sanctification. That's the goal. And I'm, I'm not ignorant to think that everybody has arrived at the place of blank check living. In fact, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm even there as your pastor. All of us have things in ways that we're tempted to hold on to control and hold on to our own personal narratives and hold on to our own personal vices and go, no, I can't surrender that even though I said I was gonna surrender that. And so if you're here and you're like, yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm not at the point of like, God, blank check before your throne. You can ask me for anything at any time in any way. I'm not there. Welcome to the club. But the problem is to get to the space where our lives really are fully surrendered to Jesus you have to have a compelling vision of Jesus. Like nobody arrives at full surrender intellectually. Nobody just reads the story and goes, whoa, this actually checks out. I'm in, you can have it all. Like, like there has to be a vision of who he is that's so compelling and so captivating that you go, you know what? While everything in me wants to hold on to my version of what life should look like, Seeing you, sensing you, and knowing you, I, 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 even if I feel everything in me holding me back from this, I have to surrender to you because you're better. And I want to show you today from the scriptures that you actually can have that compelling vision of Jesus. But it's probably not going to come when you're looking to the sky for a supernatural sign. It will probably come the more you open your Bible and get serious about the scriptures where you truly can see and savor the Son of God. I already know you brought your Bible, but everybody else, if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up once again. Second Bible drill. If Thanksgiving is legitimately your favorite holiday, this is the question I had. Leave your Bible in the air. I just want to know, who are the Thanksgiving people? Okay, th th Thanksgiving lovers in the Listen, I got no issues with y'all. An entire holiday dedicated to just sitting around eating and being grateful? This is, is brilliant and very... American. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving this week. Thanksgiving is, uh, I, I would say it's, it's underrated. And, and there's a lot of people in our church, I won't say any names, who are jumping the gun on Christmas. And I'm one of those who's like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all about compromise. Like I'll, I'll go November 15th. So I'm good right now. There was people pre-October 31st putting up decorations this year and I wanted to like have a counseling session where I could tell you as your pastor you have problems and you need to calm down I love Christmas just as much as anybody but let's enjoy the journey and the process so by the time it gets here we don't like hate it see that's what happens to me is I end up becoming a Grinch over time because it's an overexposure of multiple months so by the day I'm like can we get I love you Jesus but you have been in that manger for two months now we have got to like we've got to move on from this so let's let's give our heart space Acts chapter 17 verse 10 we got a quick section of scripture and we'll talk about it if you're there say I'm there as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Why did they do that? And why did they do it at night? Because the Jews in Thessalonica, like Gage talked about last week, were coming after Paul and Silas. So they're sending them to this city in the mountains that's about 50 miles from where Thessalonica is. And at nighttime, sending them away so they don't get arrested like Jason did, who was hosting them. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's talk about what we just read. Paul and them leave Thessalonica, they go to Berea, and this is a pretty big city, so they have an established Jewish synagogue. Paul's go-to move was to go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is actually the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures, and by grace, through faith in him, you can come to new life. So he goes, and it goes really well, because the Berean Jews are in a position to receive, they're eager to hear, but they're not like just eager to hear a new message. They're willing and diligent to get in the scriptures and figure out, hey, is this actually what's written here? And oh my goodness, yes it is. And they're placing their faith in Jesus. Everything's going awesome until the Jews from 50 miles away go, hey, if he left in the middle of the night, we know where he's going. They get word that he's in Berea and they chase him down there. And just as quickly as a church is born in Berea, Paul has to head out all the way down to Athens where we're gonna pick up with him next Sunday, and you get this little section of, wait, that was going so well. Oh, no, see ya later. You ever had like a brief season of life? Maybe you went to a school for one year, or maybe you had a job for six months, and it was just awesome, and then it was gone. And, as, and you, you kind of forget that it even happened. I think that's what happened to the Berean church. It was just such a quick, fleeting moment that most Christians don't even know that this was actually a city where people were following Jesus. But of all the cities that Paul stops by in the book of Acts, none is commended with more positive language from Luke like the Berean church was. And if you didn't catch it, we're gonna read one verse in verse 11. I'm gonna show you what Luke said about them. It said, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I love this. It says they they received the message with great eagerness. They weren't defensive about their preconceived notions in a way that kept them from hearing the message Paul was coming to bring, even though it was something they didn't see coming. When the word of God goes out to a heart that's eager to hear from God, fruit always grows. Anytime you're within the sound, sound of my voice on a Sunday or listening to preaching or opening the word of God, there's a difference between checking the box to do it and just showing up with kind of your mind in another place and showing up with eagerness going, I want something from this. I came and I opened my Bible this morning and I came for a meal, God. I believe your word is going to speak to me. And there are times to open your Bible, whether you feel like it or not. But I do believe your heart posture makes all the difference in the world in the way you open the scriptures, that you're eager to receive something. See, there's a difference between somebody who's in this gathering right now listening for something that I might say that doesn't exactly align with them theologically and somebody who doesn't even care what my name is. They just want to hear from God. Total difference. And some of us can get so intellectual with our pursuit of God that that intellectualism morphs into criticism 
And the criticism blocks us from the Holy Spirit actually speaking to us. There's an eagerness to go, hey, he might have something here that's actually from God. And if he does, I want to hear it. But watch this. The eagerness to hear from the scriptures is not coupled with blind ignorance. It's not like, oh, Paul, whatever you say, we'll go with because clearly you're passionate about it. Like, uh, tell us more about Jesus being the Messiah. No, 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 no. It's, it's an eager heart combined with a diligent mind. That, that it says, they, they, they didn't just take Paul's word for it and go, oh, great, that's who God is. They opened their Bibles for themselves and were like, okay, scrolls, actually, and, and, and thought, okay, does, is what he is saying actually lining up? They're talking to one another. They're reasoning together, making sure that what they're being taught is legit. More than ever, in an Instagram, TikTok, YouTube generation, you cannot take at face value everything somebody claims to be true about Jesus. Oh man, this, this, this reel was just so passionate. And so I've seen so many things on social media this year that I'm going, I bet you half of our church would hear this at face value and just be fine with it. And everything that man just said is totally off biblically. And I just want you to be careful. I don't want that to make you critical to the degree that you can't receive what God has. I want your heart eager, but at the same time, I want you to go back to the scriptures for yourself and make sure whatever teaching you're, le you're letting tell you who God is, you need to make sure that teaching is rooted in orthodox biblical teaching, not conjured up by somebody who's good at stirring up emotion. And by the way, I'm not against stirring up emotion. I believe God gave us those on purpose to encounter him. I don't think we need to make the presentation of the Bible boring and call boring biblical. No, 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 no. It needs to be interesting. But it doesn't need to just apply to your emotions. It needs to apply to your mind and your logic and your intellect as well. And I love that they're combining both things. But at the end of the day, the thing that stood out to me the most about the church in Berea, this is so cool. And if I lost you in that little explanation, you need to look up here and do not miss this. Because this, this, is, this is the whole sermon right here. It's good to say that 10 minutes in. This is it. When they were listening to Paul and examining the scriptures... They were pursuing the meaning of what God said, not deciding how they would respond. Think very deeply and, and slowly and carefully with me about what I just said. They were pursuing the meaning of what it said, not choosing all the while how they would respond on the back end. Their response was already picked. It's yes to God. The question is, what is God saying? ACC, this is so simple. That is blank check living. See, so, so many times when we approach God, we're doing two different things. We're trying to pursue, what are you saying? But we're also asking in the back of our mind, am I going to go with that or not? Once he says that, am I in? Am I, and we're kind of negotiating our wants and our desires with God's revelation. But what I love about the Bereans is they go, God, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? All we got to figure out is what you're asking. And if what you're saying is what Paul is teaching, then yep, even though we didn't see it coming, and even though this isn't how we would have written the story, we are in. ACC, look at me. 
when we over and over again talk about being the remnant, we talk about being fully surrendered, we talk about being radical. I'm talking today about blank check living. We're saying the same thing over and over and over again with different words. But I want you to know today how to measure whether or not you are a radical blank check living member of the remnant surrendered to God or whether or not you're one of those who's still deciding. I want you to know, what is the measuring stick? Is it, is it how much of the Bible I know? Is it when and where I raise my hands and how passionate I am? Like what, what tells me whether or not I've actually arrived there? I want to clarify. Here's, here's the answer. How do I know whether or not I'm living with a blank check before God? It's the answer to the question, how do you respond to God's voice? When God speaks, are you still going back and forth with the answer? Or have you decided before I even hear it, it's yes because of who's talking? Of all the marriage advice I could possibly give to those in the room who are not married and who are dating, and there's, there's a lot. The main thing I remember from being a college student and making the decision I'm going to propose to Courtney was that this was the number one factor that was true about her life. And I, I don't say this to win points with my wife on a Sunday morning. This is legitimately something that is born out of her life. But as a college student, I noticed in this girl that she went to the word of God with a heart posture that was already surrendered. It's already yes. We don't get to make decisions about whether or not we want to say yes or no. And that's not to say that she was perfect or always, always said yes to God. It just means her heart posture was, if the word teaches it, I've got to conform my life to this reality, not try to conform this into what I want reality to look like. And I would tell you, if you're searching for a spouse, yes, you can evaluate factors across the board. There's a lot of different ones. From my personal story, that's the number one thing you should look for. How do they respond when God speaks? Is it a pre-decided, yes, I can't take it back, or is it, you know what, I'll see how much he's asking for, and then I'll decide whether or not I'm actually willing to step in. If you want to write this down, quick definition, blank check living equals irrevocable yes to God's word. Blank check living is an irrevocable yes to God's word. But this is not systemic and it's not pretty. I mean particularly when God's voice speaks in a way that looks different than what you assumed or thought was coming. None of the Berean Jews are at the synagogue going, you know what's going to happen today? There's a guy named Paul coming from Thessalonica who's going to turn our whole worldview upside down. None of them see this coming. But their hearts are in a posture to go, I haven't pre-decided what God is going to say to me today. So when he speaks, I'm going to say yes, but I'm open to him saying something that doesn't look like what I even want him to say. Think about like Peter in John chapter six, when Jesus makes that statement in front of the crowd, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Remember that? And everybody who was following him because of the free food and the feeding of the 5,000, they're all like, oh, cannibalism, I'm out. And, and like thousands of people are leaving Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and the disciples and he goes, are y'all leaving too? And you can feel the tension in Peter. He's like, to whom shall we go? What other option do we have? We, we've already left everything to follow you, but notice what Peter says about why he's sticking with Jesus. He says, you alone have the words to eternal life. So 
We don't understand why you just drove off thousands of people with a weird illustration about eating flesh and drinking blood. In fact, we'd really like an explanation for what in the world you're talking about, but we, there's no going back now. We've already decided to go with you. And so if this is where we're going, this is where we're going. This is, this is what happens when Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you guys have been fishing all night. That's pretty frustrating, not catching anything, right? Just take that net, throw it over there. And they're like, we're fishermen. You're not. We're tired. That's not going to work. We've done that a hundred times. But what, what, what do they say? They say, but at your word, we will let down the nets. See, it's, it's the word that trumps everything because the word is what God wants to write on your blank check. Like when you come before God with your life and you go, God, it's whatever you want it to be. I've already signed the check. You can draw from my life whatever you want. I believe God's not sitting there going, okay, I'll, I'll let you know what, what I'm going to take and how I want you to live. And we'll talk about that later. But thank you for being willing to surrender. No, God's going, hey, I got content for that check. I got a lot of it. It's, it's already written and this is what I want your life to conform to. And no, reading the Bible does not give you a black and white access to the voice of God in every circumstance and situation that you're in. But I do believe the word of God is your doorway to God speaking to you in a real way. And your lifelong yes to God will be directly related to your lifelong posture before God's word. Like blank check living is not a moment that you had at a conference or even at an ACC service where you were like, okay, I'm finally all in. Here it is. Here it is, God. There are defining moments in your journey spiritually, no doubt. But blank check living is really the question of how is your heart postured towards God's word today? Like right now. It's not as, yes, I'm in or no, I'm out. It costs too much. It's a, hold on, how's your heart in this moment related to what God might be speaking to you? And the great thing about Jesus' teaching, Jesus was such a brilliant rabbi. I'm so glad that Bruce used that word to describe him because we forget that Jesus was a brilliant teacher, second to none. We love giving him credit as like a mystical healer and just a very kind man who liked to hug people. You guys know this is the most brilliant teacher to ever live. And Jesus was able to, in the parable of the sower, tell everyone who would ever hear the word of God all of their responses summed up in a story about four different soils. So if you're wondering today, how is my heart postured before God? Jesus would say, We're, there's really only four possibilities that would be your answer. If you want a full sermon on this, I did a full sermon on the parable of the sower a little over a year ago in the Luke series. But we'll put those soils on the screen right now. Jesus said, man, a sower goes out, sows seed, throws it, and it lands in different places, and different results happen across the board. There's the, the seed that lands on the path, the seed that lands on the rocky ground, the seed that lands among thorns, and the one that lands on good soil. And Jesus basically said, here's the difference between the two. The one that lands on the path gets snatched up by birds. That's the one who doesn't even hear the word. It just gets it's snatched up by the enemy before they can even pay attention. And then there's one that lands on rocky ground and it starts growing, but it doesn't have a root or soil to really, to really fully flourish from. And that's the one who hears the word and then suffering and persecution comes and then they're out. They think they're saying yes to God, but then it gets harder and the yes becomes a maybe and becomes a no. But then there's some seed that lands among thorns and that one's on good soil. Like that one's growing. It's just surrounded by all the wrong things. And Jesus said, that's the deceitfulness of wealth and the pleasures of sin and the worries of this life that choke out the word. But then some land on good soil and produce and bear fruit a hundred times over. 
ACC, look at me. Right now, your life and your posture towards God's word is on one of these four soils right now as I'm talking. And whether or not you're a good soil for the word to land and grow and produce is the answer to the question of whether or not you're living with a blank check before God. How are you posturing yourself toward the word of God? So with just few minutes I have left, my three points are going to go hand in hand with, can we put the soils back up there for just one second? With one, two, and three, because I don't really need to tell number four to do anything because they're already doing it correctly. So I'm just going to ask three questions about the first three, and then hopefully you are going to have a Thanksgiving week where you don't just feast on food, where you feast on the word of God. Is this good? Is this helping anybody? Okay. First question related to the, the uh, seed that fell on the path. Number one, Are you, blank check living, are you too distracted to even discern God's voice? Are you too distracted to even discern God's voice? Here's what's slightly funny, but also sad. Hardly anyone listening to me right now thinks that they're the one on the path getting snatched up by the enemy. And the reality is, that's the most common one. That's the most common one in my life. This is humbling. As I preach this sermon about surrendering to God, I think we need to be more worried about whether or not we can even hear God in the first place than whether or not we'll surrender once we hear him. That's where we are, guys. We are so distracted and overstimulated away from the word even speaking to us that the real question of this sermon is not like, hey, when the word comes and God speaks, are you gonna be like the Jews at Berea who are like, yes, I didn't see this coming, but yes, I'm in. The real question at ACC is back like 10 steps behind that to go, hey, when God speaks, are you even going to be paying attention at all? Will I even notice it? Will I even have the capacity to discern because what the enemy loves to do is pluck away the opportunity for the word to land and grow by distraction and he is more successful in our day than in any other era of human history. I read a a quote this week from a theologian I, I respect and it said, the job of a pastor is not to get his congregation doing things for God. The job of a pastor is to ensure that his people are not too distracted to attend to the voice of God in the first place. This is a total flip in pursuit because so much of me right now wants to like light a fire underneath you to like do stuff for God, like get serious about the kingdom of God. But the first step is your life is aimed at too many other things to even discern what God is saying to you in the first place. And if your life is marked by constant distraction and overstimulation and over phone use and over social media use and over activity, whether that be your kids or someone else or job, if you have let your life become so loud, you don't really need to worry today about whether or not you're surrendered and living with a blank check. You need to take a step back and go, can I even hear him at all? And I do not want this sermon to be convicting enough to get you to get your Bible out tomorrow morning. That is not the win of this sermon. This is what happens to us, right? We hear about the word of God. We're like, oh yes, I gotta get, I gotta get undistracted. I got, yes, I am going to get alone with God this week. No, that, that will have a short-sighted change on your life. What I wanna invite you to do 
is examine the rhythms of your life and ask yourself whether or not your priorities and your schedule is even conducive to God speaking to you at all in the first place. If you want change in hearing God, it will be a holistic change on your rules of life more than it will be a tomorrow morning, I'm gonna open my Bible. Good luck sustaining that. And for years at ACC, we've been trying to put spiritual disciplines in front of y'all. Our staff team talks a lot about what's called a rule of life. It's when you, you take your whole life and go, okay, this isn't working. That's the first step. And you go, what do I have to do to build into my life a pre-decided way of living that ensures I hear the voice of God? I prioritize my family. I live in a way that honors and glorifies God. And you're not going to do that living a reactive life to what happens to you this week. You have to get proactive enough to go, I'm tired of not hearing the voice of God, so I'm going to build my life around that and let everything else fall into place around union with Christ. And what's sad about this moment for me is I think this sermon is really good, just being honest. I think it's good content, I I think it will be so limited in its impact because what you really need to live a life with a blank check before God is like make that blank check something real, like something that you need to give up, something that you need to change holistically, not tomorrow, but God, how do I build my life in a way that actually prioritizes knowing you deeply? Last thing I'll say about this one. I love the word examine because it says they examine the scriptures Socrates was the philosopher who said the unexamined life is not worth living. I think there's some brilliance to that. Like you'll, your life's not even worth living if you don't take the time to actually look at whether or not what you're doing is working. But I think the examined life is not just like self-reflection and therapy. I think the examined life is the mirror of the scriptures. Like you want to examine how things are doing for you? Go to the Bible with an eager heart and let God speak into the parts of you that desperately need his healing touch and his attention. Are you too distracted to even discern God's voice? That's number one. And let's just, let's just be real. The answer is yes. Right, across the board. We've got business to deal with God in point number one. Blank check living. Are you too distracted to even discern God's voice? Number two, what was the second soil? The rocky ground, the one that withered away when suffering came. Number two, is your suffering an invitation to go deeper in the word or is it the reason you disengage? Is your suffering on whatever level an invitation to go deeper in the word or the reason you disengage? See, for so many people, when, when something they didn't see coming hits their life, it becomes their license to pull back from allowing God to speak to them. Because what we do is we weaponize God's sovereignty as a way of distancing ourselves from him instead of seeing his sovereignty as the portal and the invitation to go, hold on, there's probably something more on the back end of God allowing this because I know who he is and that he loves me. No way for me to cover across the board the suffering that's being felt in this room or whoever's joining us through a screen right now. I don't pretend to, and and, and I do empathize with right where you are today, but I would say suffering is actually the most fertile ground for the word of God to go out and bear much fruit. I've, I've said it many times. The people in this room right now who are listening the most intently are the people who are going through the most. To the people who aren't going through it right now, you come in, you get your coffee, you're tired. Let's see what, what's going on in church today. Let's see if it applies to my life. The people in pain, the people who just lost somebody, the, the people who are going through a breakup, 
Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Their heart is so soft to the things of God because they're going, my need is producing in me a portal to hear more from you. And I don't know your level of suffering in any season of life, but I would say this. When you're going through it at whatever level, that is the ultimate space to allow the word of God to land in your life in a fresh way and produce fruit. There are few things in your life, if any, that produce spiritual growth like pain and suffering. And so while I don't wish it on anybody, I don't want your response to be, okay, tried that, didn't work, life got more complicated. I want the complications of life to drive you deeper. And I would just say, I'm gonna steal this from John Piper for a second, don't waste your pain. It it sounds so counterintuitive, but pain is actually the ultimate gift to knowing God deeper. And you will waste it if you medicate it and numb yourself elsewhere instead of going deeper and deeper into the scriptures. I know, I know people that we're close to in this church who are going through it this week. And it sounds so insensitive to say, hey, um, more than ever, you need to be in the scriptures and you need to allow truth to fill your mind. But just because it's hard to say in stomach doesn't mean it's not true. You have to allow suffering and pain to become the reason you go deeper in the word and know Jesus more. Number three, and then we're done, I promise. What's number three? The the soil that was covered in thorns. What is choking out your willingness to surrender to God's voice? What is choking out your willingness to surrender to God's voice? You know, the one that landed on good soil but got choked out by thorns is the saddest one. I think it's the most tragic one because things were going so good. But you will always get hit with a combination of three things that are trying to steal from you what God is growing in your life. You will get hit with the worries and anxieties of this life. So fear and anxiety has you. That's one that's going to keep coming after you your entire life to steal away from what God is saying to you. The deceitfulness of wealth. You will always have this side of heaven, this innate ability to believe that if you had more, you would be okay. And number three, the pleasures of sin. That life would be better having that that God told me I can't have than having this that looks like restriction and slavery, but God's telling me to go this way. No, when God does that, he is not trying to enslave you and restrict you. He is trying to free you. And that offer of freedom from the pleasure of sin is trying to enslave you. And I just wanna ask you simply today, What is the specific thing that is choking out the word of God from landing in your life and growing and producing fruit? And the sad thing about this one is is you can't remove what's choking out God's word by going to the specific thing. You can only remove those thorns by lifting your eyes to Jesus. The only way to not allow the pleasures of sin and the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life overcome the word in your life is to have a transcendent vision of Jesus. It's to be able to say like Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and exalted. You gotta see him. You gotta have a worshipful pursuit with Jesus that looks like bearing witness to his holiness. And this happens in the prayer closet. This happens on your own time. This happens when we gather corporately. But most of the time, your transcendent vision of Jesus will be discovered through the portal of the scriptures. 
And I don't know how to explain this to people who have never gone deep in God's word, but wow, when scripture says about itself that it is alive and active, it really is. And when you come with a diligent mind and an eager heart, there is more on these pages than words. There is an opportunity to walk with divine power that has been given to you. And so I'm gonna create just a moment for those three questions to be asked across all of our locations right now. But I really want you, if you're desperate for what's being preached about today, ask God, give me a transcendent vision. Let me see Jesus. I haven't been seeing you. I've been so blind in my life to what matters the most. Help me to wake up. Help me to change my rhythms. Help me to build a life around a blank check before your throne that says Jesus whatever and do the work in me you can get your elements out for communion right now I realize that a lot's been said and a lot needs to be processed if you didn't get one at all of our locations you can just raise your hand raise it high so the people on our team can see it and we'll have the communion stations available as we reflect can we put those three uh, questions on the screen I want husbands to pray over wives in this moment if they feel led but really I want you to stare down those three questions and let them convict you as you remember the body and the blood of Jesus that bought back your redemption. The intention of these questions is not to make you feel guilty. So like you went to church and got disciplined and now you're gonna try to change. No, I want you to stare down convicting questions as you're taking the elements of the body and the blood of Jesus and going, it's already been paid. He loves me, he's with me, He's for me. Let him convict you in the most holy way while the spirit woos you and draws you near because you are closer than you think to the presence of God. Let's take communion together and then we'll sing in a couple of minutes. Let's just keep this space as holy and as reverent as we possibly can. This is the presence of God.